Good morning. It is a good morning. It's good to be here on this Lord's Day. The Lord made it. But it's also the 504th anniversary of the Reformation, marking Luther's protest that the church had lost its way. And this is the day 504 years ago that he posted his 95 theses at the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. Lutheran churches mark this day. You're marking this day. We could think of this day as the day when the church began to recover the authority of God's Word, Scripture. Now, a lot of the, uh, the Reformers did, they wrote in Latin. But I think you probably know a little Latin. Semper Fi. You know that, don't you? It's not a Reformation saying. It could have been. It's the abbreviated motto of the U.S. Marine Corps, adopted in 1883, Semper Fidelis, always faithful, always loyal. And to the Marines, Semper Fi is more than a motto. It's a morality, a mentality, a, a way of life. It's a commitment to the core, the body of Marines. Simplify as a motto actually is older than the Marines, older even than the Reformation. It's actually served as the motto of a little French town called Abbeville, and they adopted it in 1369. So, we can speak of fides, faith, but even though simplify, fides, comes from faith, it's not a synonym for sola Fide. That's another Reformation slogan, faith alone. Simplify isn't like faith alone. It's something else. If I had to fit or match simplify with a sola, it would probably be solus Christus, Christ alone, always faithful to Him, always faithful to Christ, to His core, to His body broken for you. We are the body of Christ, and we have to be faithful to one another. But I was thinking about semper fi, that Latin word meaning always faithful, and I was thinking about the Reformation solas that mean alone, faith alone, and I wondered, does every semper have a sola? Is there a, an alone that matches uh, all the always that we read about in Scripture? Is there an always that matches the Reformation solas? grace alone, faith alone, Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. There are five solas traditionally, and I wondered, are there five simpers, five always that parallel these five alones? There's lots of passages in Scripture that say always. Uh, Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.16, rejoice always, semper gaudete, if you know some of Christmas carols and the Latin ones, there are some very joyful songs built on that word, gaudete, always rejoicing. Uh, so, I think semper gaudete fits well with sola fide, faith alone, because faith is the means by which we lay hold of Christ, our joy. Elsewhere, Paul says to give thanks always, Ephesians 5.20. 
What do we give thanks for? Well, I think being grateful always lines up with sola gratia, the grace alone of God. That is why we are grateful as Christians, for God's good grace. Semper gratis, always grateful, meet sola gratia, grace alone. Well, this morning's Scripture readings that I'll read in a moment are going to suggest a different semper. Uh, my title today is Semper Reformanda, Always Reforming. That's what I want to think about with you this morning, always reforming. And that's necessary because God's people, sadly, aren't always Semper Fi, always faithful. More on that in a moment. But in the meantime, I want you to think about what sola would you match with this phrase, semper reformanda, always reforming. The unabridged Latin saying from which semper reformanda comes contains a hint. Ecclesia reformata, semper reformanda, es segundum verbum dei. By the way, I'm quoting Latin because I know Pastor Raymond is teaching his children Latin. So I'm hoping they got that. But if you didn't, what I just said was, the Reformed Church always reforming according to the Word of God. There's the hint, Word of God, sola scriptura. It's not simply a product of the Reformation, this phrase, sola scriptura. It's the engine of Reformation, sola scriptura. Scripture alone has authority for the faith and life of the church, and Scripture alone is what allows us to be always reforming. I think we could have learned this from Scripture alone, but uh, just before we turn to Scripture, let me say a little bit more about it because it is Reformation Day, a little bit more about the historical origins of this phrase. Why did people start saying Semper Reformanda in the first place. It's actually unlikely that any of the first-generation reformers ever used this phrase, Semper Reformanda. I was surprised to learn that and a little disappointed. But uh, a variation comes in the 17th century Dutch devotional work, sometimes called the Second Reformation. But uh, it's likely that the original intention of this phrase, Semper Reformanda, was less about reforming doctrine than it was about bringing the lives of God's people into conformity with the truths that were confessed by these great Reformation confessions, including the Heidelberg Catechism that we just recited. Because in the 17th century in Holland, the challenge at the moment wasn't false doctrine, it was empty formalism. It was people reciting the doctrine, but it wasn't really doing anything in their lives. And that's why they came up with this phrase, semper reformanda. The church is reformed, yes, but that's not good enough. It must be always being reformed. To complicate matters further, when you untether this phrase, semper reformanda, from its original Dutch context... You can twist it this way and that, the way Luther worried that people were twisting Scripture's proverbial nose of wax this way and the other, because several theologians more recently 
have been using this phrase, semper reformanda, always reforming, to justify departures from orthodoxy, to justify departures from, say, traditional Christian sexual ethics. For example, one theologian on the fringes of evangelicalism says that the Reformation's greatest legacy has less to do with particular doctrines than with this phrase, semper reformanda, which he says is the general need for change. Can you imagine that? Someone appealing to a Reformation phrase to say, yep, that's what the Reformation gave us, this sense that we need to change from time to time. It's such reckless claims that have led people like Kevin DeYoung uh, to suggest that see, people are abusing this phrase, semper reformanda. They're banding it about in support of the revisionist spirit of the age. But rightly understood in his context, semper reformanda, always reforming, doesn't bless either the status quo or change for change's sake. Newer isn't always better. What counts in the church isn't simply progress. What counts is reformation, progress that corresponds to the Word of God. I was surprised to learn that even a handful of Roman Catholics have adopted this phrase, semper reformanda. Uh, the Bishop of Sioux City, Iowa, used it as the title for a pastoral letter to his diocese when he was re, uh, speaking about the future of the church. He says, the church is always in need of renewal because it is made up of us, imperfect human beings. That's true. Semper reformanda becomes a call to retrieve not only the truths of the faith, but also our lives that conform to those truths. So, and now I'm coming to the end of this extended introduction, Tradition alone doesn't give us enough evidence to define Semper Reformata or to say that it really was a legitimate teaching of the Reformation. Tradition alone, again, doesn't find it in the first-generation Reformers. But what about scriptural warrant? Do you think the idea, Semper Reformata, always reforming, do you think it has biblical backing? I know of at least one preacher who preached uh, on Psalm 85.6 as his text for this sermon on Semper Reformanda, will you not revise us again? Um, that's a great text, but it's not the one I'm using this morning. We may not have a proof text for Semper Reformanda, but what we lack in explicit biblical texts is more than made up for by biblical examples. So I want you to consider with me now what we could describe as the very first Reformation and the first Reformer. I'm thinking of King Josiah. We have two accounts of this king in 2 Kings chapters 22 to 23 and in 2 Chronicles chapters 34 and 35. I think it's worth mentioning King Josiah if he was a Reformer on this Reformation day. Let me read uh, some excerpts from 2 Kings 22, 2 Kings 22, starting from verse 11. And remember, I'm suggesting he's a reformer. Verse 11, when the king heard the words of the book of the law, 
he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah the priest, saying, Go, inquire of the Lord for me and for the people and for all Judea concerning the words of this book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. So Hilkiah the priest went to Huldah the prophetess and talked with her, and she said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the words of the book that the king of Judah has read, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the work of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be kindled against this place, and it will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was penitent and you humbled yourself before the Lord when you heard how I spoke against this place and against its inhabitants, that they should become a desolation and a curse, and you have torn your clothes and wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Therefore, behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. And your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place. And they brought back word to the king. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people joined in the covenant. Do you think Josiah was a reformer? Somehow people had forgotten the word of God and Josiah discovered it and he wanted to do something about it. Josiah inherited the throne when he was only eight. He was a preteen. Shortly after the disastrous 55-year reign of Manasseh, a king who led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray, to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. As with Israel's other kings, Manasseh's doing evil on the side of the Lord was in direct proportion to his failure to heed the word of the Lord. But in contrast, if you read the story of Josiah, his story has, ends with the formula with all the good kings, the kings who keep God's covenant, Josiah, we read, did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father David, not turning aside to the right or to the left. And the story of King Josiah, the first reformer, concludes on an even more positive note. We read, neither before nor after Josiah 
Was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his strength in accordance with all the law of Moses? Does that language, all heart, soul, and strength, remind you of something? It's, it's very close to Jesus' language about the greatest commandment, to love God with all your heart, soul, and strength. So Josiah is one of the good kings. He purged Judah of the high places. He broke down the altars where people were worshiping false gods. He preserved the integrity of the temple, the house of the Lord. No small thing, because the monarchy and the temple were the key ingredients in God's people and in the Davidic covenant. And this is crucial because God's plan for people since the beginning was to create a people for Himself, a holy nation with a house for His name to dwell forever, 2 Samuel 7. The bad kings of Israel violated the covenant. They worshiped other gods. They built other gods' houses or high places instead of caring exclusively about the house of the Lord. The chronicler, the author of First and Second Chronicles, has his own agenda. His story doesn't entirely match up with that of kings, but both accounts agree that Josiah's discovery of the book of the law, which was probably Deuteronomy, that had been forgotten for who knows how many years, Josiah's discovery of the book of the law was the highlight of his reign. Not battles, not buildings, the discovering God's Word. And this was the catalyst for his reform of Israel. You see, Israel was a people of the book long before Protestants arrived on the scene. And just how Israel could have abandoned, abandoned the mandate to read Torah, the book of Deuteronomy, just how they could have forgotten Deuteronomy is hard for me to fathom. It's like Americans forgetting the Constitution. <laughs> Can you imagine doing America without the Constitution? How do you do Israel without Deuteronomy? Well, maybe it's not so implausible. Uh, a recent poll suggests that only 33% of our citizens can rightly identify the Bill of Rights. In any case, there was no excuse for Israel's ignorance of God's law. And this is why Josiah tore his clothes. It was a display of profound repentance. And again, he said, great is the wrath of the Lord that is kindled against us because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book. And again, it was because of Josiah's, Josiah's zeal for obedience to God's Word that uh, one commentator on this passage uh, describes him as a second Moses, a second Moses. So, the people deserved disaster, but the Lord did not bring it, at least not yet, the disaster being exile, being removed from His presence. And they, he didn't execute that judgment because Josiah's heart was penitent. He humbled himself before the Lord. He tore his clothes and he teared up. He wept, we're told. And he's been described as the most responsive royal heart since the hearing heart of Solomon. 
Josiah responds to God's word like a true king of Israel. You see, kings were to be personifications of wisdom. They were to embody the fear of the Lord. They were to show people what it looked like to walk before the Lord rightly. It's almost as if Josiah anticipates and embodies what James says about wisdom. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because if you're a hearer of the word and not a doer, you're like someone who looks at your face in a mirror, but then you go away and you forget what you look like. But if you look into the perfect law, the law of liberty, says James, and persevere and remember that, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, you'll be blessed by your doing. I think Josiah saw himself in the mirror of the law And he realized that Israel was the Lord's treasured possession, a holy nation. He saw himself and all of Israel for what they truly were, God's chosen people. And yet, despite that, Israel had forgotten who she was. Israel had forgotten her true identity as a holy nation in her zeal to become like the other nations. You can't be a holy nation if you want to be like the other nations. Israel wanted to be like everybody else. So Josiah is a doer of the word because he knows who he is, who he belongs to, and who he is to represent. And that's why he had to renew the covenant with the Lord, pledging with all his heart, soul, and strength to walk after the Lord, and to perform, do, the words of the covenant that were written in the book. And if you read 1 Kings chapter 23, you'll see that Josiah was as good as his word. He deposed the priests who had served Baal. He got rid of the high places. He destroyed chariots that had been dedicated to false gods. He pulled down the altars to false gods and reduced them to dust. He pulverized them. It was long overdue spring cleaning, spring cleaning of the house of God. Josiah also reinstated the Passover, which, according to 1 Kings, had shockingly enough not been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel or during all the days of the kings of Israel or the kings of Judah, 2 Kings 23. Isn't that unbelievable? that the very people whom God had delivered from Egypt failed to keep the one practice that they were supposed to keep to remember their deliverance, Passover. But thanks to Josiah, in this story, there's a happy ending, at least temporarily. We read, all his days, all Josiah's days, they, the people of Israel, did not turn away from following the Lord the God of their fathers. You might say that thanks to Josiah, the people of Israel were always reforming, always reforming. At the very least, it's a striking picture of reformation, the people of God as the house of God enacting the Word of God to the glory of God. Now, you may be thinking, that was Israel. The church could never be as forgetful. I beg to differ. 
And not so long ago, I was teaching a course on the doctrine of the church, and we were discussing the Lord's Supper, the Christian Passover, as it were, and I asked the students to tell me something about their own church practice. How many times a month do you celebrate the Lord's Supper, I asked. And I wasn't prepared for one answer. One student said, I, I can't remember when my church last had communion. I think we may have forgot. So, friends, it can happen. Consider what Paul says to the church in Galatians, chapter 1, verse 6. He says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly turning to a different gospel. These things can happen quickly. And elsewhere, Paul says that the things that happened to Israel serve as examples for the church, that we may not desire evil as they did, 1 Corinthians 10, 6. Now, in the context, in that 1 Corinthians 10 context, Paul's thinking about the wilderness wanderings of Israel. Before there even was a kingdom, Israel had plenty of experience being unfaithful to God before the times of the kings. They were grumbling about God as they were wandering in the wilderness. But I think this lesson applies to what we've just read in 2 Kings 2. God's people must never forget God's Word, whether it's law or gospel, but rather God's people must hear and then do this Word. In short, we must be always reforming because we're never always faithful. This brings me finally to Hebrews 3, my passage for this morning. Um, I'd like to begin at verse 1, uh, and we'll read from verse 1 through verse 15. And I just want you to be thinking about what we've already saw about the history of Israel as we read this. Hebrews 3, therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling... Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God." Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we share in Christ 
if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Thanks be to God. Well, the whole of Hebrews chapter 3 is part of the author's case for the superiority of the gospel of Christ and the new covenant over the law of Moses and the old covenant. Verse 1 addresses us, readers and hearers, as those who share in a heavenly calling. And that heavenly calling is to be a holy nation, a living temple set apart, a place where God will put His name. And Jesus is our great high priest. He is the one who presides over the church. But this house, this church, this is the climax of salvation history. It's the culmination of a millennia-long divine construction project because God is building His house and always has been. God is building His house, a people in whom He will dwell. This is what Hebrews says. Look at verse 6. We, believers, are His house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. We are a divine construction project, and it's ongoing. Now, Moses, and as we've seen, King Josiah, were faithful in God's house as servants. But Christ, says our chapter, is faithful over God's house as a son, and he has more glory than Moses because he is the builder, not just a servant, but he is the builder. Now, pastors today, like Moses, are also faithful servants in God's house. Whereas Moses was faithful to testify to the things that were spoke to be spoken of later, Pastors are faithful when they testify to things that have been spoken of earlier, that is, in the prophets and apostles. But it's all about faithful service in God's house. And I think this faithful service to God's house gets us to the core of what the Reformation was all about. Now, the passage in our next uh, verse goes on to consider the negative example of Israel and there's a long quotation from Psalm 95, as we've seen. The overall intent is to encourage readers to respond to God's Word, not with hard hearts, but with a faith that builds up and beautifies God's house. Now, what does this have to do with semper reformanda, always reforming? Well, just this. Hebrews is telling us that there is something God's people must do in order to enter His rest. Or rather, there's something God's people must not do. Do not harden your hearts. I think the simplest way to summarize verses 7 to 15 is to say it's a warning. Do not repeat Israel's example of unbelief. But in the midst of the warning, there's something positive. There's something positive. It's a claim about what God's people should be doing. Something we can paraphrase as, let me suggest, always 
be reforming. Always be reforming. I believe the author of Hebrews here establishes and expounds this principle of semper reformanda, and he does it with four phrases. I want us to look then at these four phrases, and the first is simply the word today, today. It's mentioned three times in verses 7, 13, and 15. And the first and last time it's mentioned, it's uh, that from a quotation from Psalm 95. Now, Psalm 95 is looking back at Israel's wilderness wanderings. It's thinking about the people's grumbling against Moses at Massa and Meribah because they had no water. The people were grumbling against God, not simply Moses, you see. Is the Lord with us or not, they asked. And they asked this after being delivered from bondage in Egypt, after being led by the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, after the manna and the water they had received from the rock. It's that grumbling and this disbelief in the face of such compelling evidence that leads the Lord to say, they shall not enter my rest. Well, that was yesterday. When is today? Are we there yet? Well, the New Testament scholar N.T. Wright sees stories as functioning a little bit like worldviews. They, they answer the basic questions we have about life and human existence. Who are we? Where are we? What's wrong with us? What can be done? And also, what time is it? And Israel's Scripture answers these questions. But I wonder whether Israel made a fatal mistake in thinking that God was part of Israel's story rather than Israel part of God's story. If you're going to go on a 40-year hike in the wilderness with the living God, it's important to know why you are there and where you are going. So, why are we, the church, here? And where are we going? These are questions for us. Now, Psalm 95 may have been written in David's day, but the ultimate speaker, according to verse 7, Hebrews 3, is the Holy Spirit. So, today is the time when the Spirit speaks. Today is the time when God is addressing us. Anytime God addresses us, it's today. This word today looms large in Moses' speeches to Israel in the book of Deuteronomy when he's setting the covenant before them in the first place. Today is the day of the covenant. And we, we also have in Joshua 24 a powerful reference to today because, again, the people are confronted with the covenant and Joshua tells them, choose you this day today, whom you will serve. In other words, today is a day of decision. I think uh, a book on the life of C.S. Lewis captures this really well. C.S. Lewis, very interested in discipleship, and one author says, uh, kind of summarizing Lewis's idea, every moment of every day you're confronted with a choice. Either place God at the center of your life 
or place something else. Today is the day of decision. John Calvin also captures the urgency of recognizing what day it is in his commentary on this passage. He says, As then we know not whether God will extend His calling until tomorrow, let us not delay. Today He calls us. Let us immediately respond to Him. Today is the day. Now is the time. Not for rest, not for recreation, but for reformation. Because as God's people, we're not there yet, and our time is limited. Today, then, is the time in which we have to do what must be done. Today, yes, is the day the Lord has made, and He's given it to us, so let's not waste it. Let's not waste it by turning a deaf ear to Him. Let's not waste it by forgetting what we see when we look into the mirror of Scripture. The second phrase I want to consider as explaining what Semper Reformanda means is this, if you hear His voice, if you hear His voice. Now, you can only hear a voice if, it, if someone speaks. And in hearing, we're partly passive. And I haven't mentioned this yet, but the Latin word reformanda is also in the passive. And that means we ought to translate it always being reformed. Reforming is active, but being reformed is passive. The active agent of reformation, you see, is the triune God. God is the speaker. God is the word. God is the enabler of the hearing. The active agent of reformation is the triune God. We are passive. Faith comes from hearing the word, God's word. And hearing God's Word is the vital way we build up the household of faith. So it's important to be a doer, don't get me wrong, but it starts with right hearing. And to hear rightly, we have to be right-minded and right-hearted first responders. Right-minded and right-hearted first responders. What I mean by that is this, when Jesus called Simon and Andrew they straightway left their nets and followed Him. They were right-minded right -minded and right-hearted. They responded immediately. So, rightly to hear His voice requires us to be passive and active. We have to hear, and then we have to follow and do. Now, William Gouge, a 16th century English Puritan, uh, he, he wrote a, a, a thousand-page, three-volume commentary on Hebrews, and I like what he says about this phrase. He says, this phrase is, if you hear His voice. He says, this is the most principal and proper duty required of Christians in relation to Christ's prophetic office. Our most principal and proper duty of, as Christians in relation to Christ's prophetic office, that is, His speaking the truth, His being a teacher. We have to hear His voice, hear Christ's voice. And by the way, we read uh, an allusion to the transfiguration this morning, 
when uh, the voice from the cloud says, this is my beloved son. In Luke's gospel, in the account of the transfiguration, uh, the voice, the voice in the cloud, God's voice says, listen to him, listen to him. So, we should be attending to Christ's voice. And hearing His voice requires something external and internal. And uh, this uh, English Puritan gouge in his commentary unpacks what's involved in internal hearing and breaks it down into three components. To hear with more than your ears involves, he says, understanding, believing, and obeying. So we're passive and we're active. Hearing is something in which we, if we do it rightly, biblically, we're going to understand, believe, and obey. This leads us to the third phrase I want us to look at. We've looked at today. We've looked at if you hear His voice. But the third phrase is, do not harden your hearts. You see, one of the prerequisites for always being reformed is having a tender heart like Josiah's. And the heart, of course, stands for the whole person. So to have a tender heart means that your will and your mind and your affections are, are open. Now, for 40 years, the Israelites refused to soften their hearts towards God's Word they refused reformation, and that's why they failed to enter into God's rest. This is a very sobering picture of Israel grumbling with hard hearts in the wilderness. Because again, they hardened their hearts despite having seen over the span of 40 years God's wondrous works. So no wonder they couldn't enter God's rest. They were too busy complaining. Instead of acknowledging and thanking God for His gracious provision, they ended up provoking God with their complaints. Hebrews 3 verse 9 says, Your fathers saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation because of their complaining. So, let's not be like them, always being led astray in their hearts a condition that a doctor of the church might diagnose as simper wanderanda, always wandering around instead of following, always wandering but never able to arrive at the truth. I'm only partly joking. There's a sense in which the postmodern condition, if you know about postmodernity, is kind of like always wandering, never arriving at the truth. The pilgrimage of faith may involve wilderness wanderings, but it's not blind. But the author of Hebrews is worried lest the church repeat Israel's mistake. It's not entirely clear from the passage what the particular danger is. Maybe it's a temptation to return to Jewish ways and abandon Christ as the high priest. Maybe it's a temptation to stop walking and just settle down in the surrounding culture and be like the nations. Or maybe it's a temptation to avoid persecution by being like the nations and adopting their practices, including what gods they worship. We don't know exactly what the issue was that motivated the author of Hebrews to say this. But we do know 
is that we must not harden our hearts or neglect our confession. We will never be semper fi if we resist God's Word. So, this hardened or wandering heart is really an ungrateful heart and an unbelieving heart. How does a heart become hard? I think it becomes hard in at least two ways. First, by rejecting the means of grace that are there, say, never taking the time to listen to God's Word or to read it. That's one way of hardening your heart, not, getting, not taking advantage of means of grace. The second way of hardening your heart is by actually sinning. I think sin hardens the arteries, our spiritual arteries of our heart. So the remedy for a hardened heart is a renewed heart, one that will always need to be being reformed. And again, I like the way this English Puritan puts it. He says of this passage, therefore, suffer the Word to work on you as it did on Josiah. The Word performs heart surgery and heals. And we could also add, live each day as if it were your last. The time is short. Uh, so we now come to the fourth phrase I wanted to look at, the, a phrase that expresses the positive thrust of Semper Reformanda. The authors just warned us not to let an unbelieving heart lead us to fall away from God, but, verse 13, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There it is. That's what I was looking for, as good a biblical warrant for semper reformanda, always being reformed, as you could ask for. Always, every day, semper, being exhorted by one another. Reformanda, always being exhorted by one another. Daily exhortation, the everyday ministry of God's Word to one another. This is the remedy for unbelief and ungodliness alike. This, I submit, is the royal road to reformation, always being exhorted by one another. And I think now we're in a better position to see that sola scriptura, Scripture alone, is probably the sola that best corresponds to semper reformanda, always being reformed. Always being reformed, yes, by the ministry of God's Word alone, a ministry that is the privilege and responsibility of pastors, but also the privilege and responsibility of church members. As Martin Luther says, even though not everybody has the public office and calling, every Christian has the right and the duty to teach, instruct, admonish, comfort, and rebuke his neighbor with the Word of God at every opportunity and whenever necessary." It's very important Protestant insight that the congregation, in one sense, are ministers of the Word. So pastors have a particular vocation to minister God's Word through sermons and so on. And the sermons are crucial, by the way, because sermons remind us who we are. 
So we're not simply a group of people wandering in the wilderness. No, we know who we are and whose we are. We're the people of God, made alive together. We read that in Ephesians 2 just a few minutes ago. Made alive together in Christ. That's who we are. And we need to keep looking into the mirror of that word, the gospel. The only question is, will we go away from that mirror and forget what we are like. John Calvin puts it like this, unless our faith be now and then raised up, it will lie prostrate. It will, unless it's warmed, it will be frozen. Unless it's roused, it will grow torpid. Reformation Day, today, is a good day to increase our faith. So, we are the people of God. We are God's house. We are a holy nation. This is who we see we are when we look into the mirror of Scripture. And God's Word and Spirit and pastors and ministers are there to build and to beautify and reform God's house. We've all come to share in Christ, and that means we share in the task of house cleaning, by which I mean this prophetic ministry of exhorting one another to live up to who we are in Christ. Hebrews urges its readers to do for one another what it is actually doing for them. Uh, in Hebrews 13, we haven't read that, but in Hebrews 13, verse 22, we read this. Brothers and sisters, I exhort you to bear with my word of exhortation. The Greek word he uses for exhort there is parakaleo, and it's the same word or the root of a word that Jesus uses in John 14 through 16 when he's talking about the comforter to come, the paraclete. We translate that word counselor or advocate or comforter and helper, but I think we could also translate it as exhorter. And this exhortation that Hebrews is describing this speech act that is the engine of reformation, it involves more than saying nice things to one another, giving each other moral boosts, best wishes. No, it exhorting involves perhaps warning and reproof, as well as encouragement and comfort in the gospel. It's all about the gospel. It's ultimately a matter of remembering the story of which we are a part, of which God's people has always been a part, the story of Jesus Christ, because it is in Him that God has finally formed His treasured possession. So this mutual exhortation to believe, understand, celebrate, obey, and in every way correspond to the good news of what the Father is doing in the Son through the Spirit to make all things new. This is how we exhort one another, to remember that. Being reoriented to the gospel has always been the God-given means of authentic reformation. We, the house of God, are the reformers, always being reformed by word and spirit, always being conformed to the reality of Jesus Christ, always being transformed into the image 
of Christ by the renewing of our minds. And this is how we build up and beautify God's house, by the ministry of the Word. Semper Reformanda, the church always being reformed according to the Word of God. Do we still believe it? Can words speaking into the air really make a difference on the ground? Uh, in an age of social media dominated by computer-generated images and special effects, immersive technology, and so on, the spoken word may appear very weak in comparison. Uh, there's a French Christian sociologist, Jacques Ellul, who wrote a book several years ago called The Humiliation of the Word. And I think he was ahead of his time because this was published way back in 1985. But even then, he saw the handwriting, or maybe it was a PowerPoint slide on the wall, and he realized that the weakness of God's Word is more powerful than the powerful wisdom of the world, more powerful than Microsoft Word, if you can imagine. So, we should not underestimate these spoken words into the air when what we're speaking forth is God's Word, because God's Word is accompanied by God's Spirit, the Spirit of truth, and we are speaking truth, and that is powerful. Words read and spoken are the means the Spirit uses to reform and transform. And this is the power we have when we exhort one another, when we console and comfort, warn and rebuke, we're exercising that power in the Spirit. We're paracleting one another with God's Word. It's not our Word. We're not its possessors. We're its stewards and ministers. And we learn about it in order to give it away to others. So, do we believe in the ongoing possibility and necessity of reformation? by word and spirit. I hope so. God's Word has reformatory power. Remember what happened 500 years ago in Bern, Switzerland? It was a city that in 1523 had reaffirmed its allegiance to Roman Catholic doctrine, and it had forbidden any kind of teaching about Luther or any hint of Protestantism. This is 1523. But preachers were still free to exposit the biblical word. And this is what Berthold Haller proceeded to do at a church called St. Vincent. His biblically-based sermons began to become more looked forward to than the Mass, and by 1527, his biblical sermons had displaced the Mass in his church. And that led the city councils to call for a disputation on a series of topics because they were worried about this growing reform movement. And so clergy and laity alike debated for 19 days in the year 1528 and produced what we now know as the Ten Theses of Bern. And they affirmed them. And when they affirmed these Ten Theses, they effectively made Bern a Protestant city. I want to read you just the first thesis of Barron. It says, 
the holy Christian church, whose only head is Christ, is born of the Word of God, abides in the same, and does not listen to the voice of a stranger. The Word of God is always profitable for reforming. It was profitable for reforming Israel. It was profitable for building up the saints in New Testament times. It was profitable for reforming this church in Bern in the 16th century. And I believe it's profitable for the work of reforming churches today, even in Pennsylvania and around the world. But how does it work? As I've mentioned, it works through the power of the Holy Spirit. It works by liberating minds from falsehoods. It works by telling us the true story of the world, what the Father is doing in Christ to make all things new. It works. So, it works by communicating Christ. That's the power and the privilege that we have in speaking His Word, the gospel. So, this formula, Semper Reformanda, it may not be written in the text itself or even in Calvin, but I hope you now see that the idea of Semper Reformanda is thoroughly biblical. Calvin believed the church had been reformed, but he knew that Christ's love for the church meant that Christ would continue His beautification efforts because this house is also His bride, and Christ wants to present His bride without spot or wrinkle. So, Calvin says, the Lord is daily smoothing its wrinkles, the body of Christ, and wiping away its spots. Its holiness is not yet perfect. Such then is the holiness of the church. It makes daily progress, but it is not yet perfect. It daily advances, but as yet has not reached the goal. It daily advances. And now I think we understand what today is. It's Reformation Day, yes, but it's also a day for Reformation. And God in His mercy has prolonged this time of Reformation, not by making the sun stand still in the sky as He did for Moses, but rather by making each day today, each day is a time for repentance and Reformation. When should we be reformed? Today. How should we reform? By attending to Christ's voice rather than the voice of a stranger. From whom shall we hear Christ's voice? From one another. How shall we hear it? In faith and in the Spirit who melts and molds our hearts to gospel truth. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts, but exhort one another. Today may be the 504th anniversary of Reformation Day, but it's also the first Reformanda Day of the rest of your life. So, simplify, yes, but only if we are simper ref. May we be always faithful because we are always being reformed. Let's pray. Lord, help us to hear Your voice today and every day, and give us reformable hearts that beat in sync with Your own, responding in faith and obedience. 
May we be ever ready to speak your word in truth to one another, and may your Spirit use our words to minister your living word, even our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.